All right. Now, the conversation ran something like this. Now, we were in line for a roller coaster. And the son was staring at all the motion and hearing all the screams. And he turned and looked at his dad and said, Dad, why are we doing this again? And I could see the wheels turning in the dad's mind as he was about to lay some fatherly wisdom on his son. And he went into this this long discourse about excitement, about adrenaline, about courage. And as he finished, there was a moment of silence. And I remember being impressed with the fatherly wisdom. And then the son looks at the dad again and says, okay, why are we doing this again? And I thought, <laughs> how quickly we forget. Things go in one ear and out the other. And when our questions have been answered, the questions persist. And I can almost hear Paul doing this again. As those who are reading his letter, those who are reflecting on unity. Why is unity so important again? And Paul, over and over and over again, emphasizes unity. And here in our passage this morning, he gets to the point of it all. The bottom line, the theological justification for unity. So read with me, if you will, in Romans 15, verses 7. is the emphasis. Where Paul writes, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing hymns to your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with the people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Sing praises to him, all you people. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will raise, arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The point of it all. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father, we are reminded again at the wonder of the cross of Jesus Christ, through whom we who were once scattered and afar off, we who were once not a people, have been joined together in the body of Christ. We have been joined together as your children. And Lord, may we stand in awe again the wonder of your grace and mercy that we might glorify you. For that is the point of it all. And we pray it all in that wonderful and majestic name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Paul begins in verse 8 with this little word, for. Now, it seems like a strange way to begin this verse. 
But what it does is give the foundation, what we might call in argumentative terms, the support or the proof and common parlance. But it is the justification of what he has been talking about. Again, in verse 7, it tells us, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God for... And here he begins the justification of this. For... I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth. Now, I want you to listen to that again. For... I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews, literally circumcision, on behalf of God's truth. Now, why does Christ become a servant to the Jews? On behalf of God's truth. Now, notice with me, four times, Paul, in this very, very short, very brief set of verses, emphasizes the centrality of God in all that Christ has done. Now, for this, I want us to go up a few verses. Look in verse 6. So that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then again, in 7, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God. Now Paul has been talking a great deal about unity, of joining together in the body of Christ. And here he gives the theological justification for that. And the focus and emphasis on all that Paul says is the glory of God. Now, I want to emphasize this because it is very, very easy to slide into a human-centered understanding of the cross. But I want you to understand from Scripture, there is one primary reason for Christ's coming to bleed and to die. First and foremost, now there are implications for us and we are brought into this, but first and foremost, Jesus Christ comes and dies on the cross for the glory of God the Father. Now, for justification of this, I want us to turn back a few chapters to Romans chapter 3. Jesus' coming was not centrally for you. It was not centrally for just one nation. The primary reason for Christ's coming was for God the Father. Now, we can go to three, Romans 3, verse 23, and verses we all are familiar with. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, the all here, again, is emphasizing both Jew and Gentile. All are alike in the condemnation before a holy God, for they have fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In verse 25, we see the important verse. God presented Him, Christ, 
as a sacrifice of atonement. A sacrifice of atonement. Literally a propitiation. Now that word is so cram-packed with theological significance that it would take a sermon or two on its own just to unpack it fully. But the idea is the propitiation is an appeasement or a turning away of God's righteous wrath on sin. So that we who are sinful have God's wrath abiding upon us. But Christ, as it were, steps in the midst of this pouring wrath and shields us from it, taking it upon himself, satisfying the holiness, the justice, and the righteousness of God. Now again, this is not to say that we are irrelevant, or we are a part and parcel of this. But note you, we are brought to God the Father through Jesus Christ. So it is, as it were, we are placed between God the Father and Christ in redemption. So that once redemption has taken place, God the Father can sooner deny God the Son than he can those who have been joined together in Christ. Now that's an important theological point. To understand the point of it all. Because it's very easy to begin to think that we are the most important thing in God's eyes. As a matter of fact, if you listen to some contemporary Christian music, you would begin to think that is so. But Christ comes first and foremost from God the Father. Now, unity, first and foremost, is also about God the Father. We are joined together in Christ. Christ comes as a servant to the circumcision on behalf of God's truth. You know there are Christological implications for our unity? It is as though the unity of the body of Christ serves as an apologetic to the reality of Jesus Christ. Now for this, I want us to flip over to John. John chapter 17. In this great high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for the believers. In John 17, verse 22, verses 22 and 23. We see in Jesus' prayer, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me. Again, this unification with Christ. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. And I know Jesus' words well. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. So that the unity, the complete unity of believers in the body of Christ serves as a testimony to the watching world to the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That he did come, live, breathe, die, bury, raised, and ascended. We stand as a living testimony to the reality of Christ. Now, the point of it all is the glory of God the Father through the redemption of Jesus Christ. 
so that we might be brought together in unity. The emphasis in this passage shifts a little bit. For it is unity here between Jew and Gentile. Now, it would be overly simplistic to say that the disagreements over liberty of conscience, over what to eat, what to drink, could be based on the differences between Jew and Gentile. That would be overly simplistic to say that. But part of the division within the Roman church was along racial lines, Jew and Gentile. The differences that are involved there. Now, all of this is tied up in the unity that Paul desires to see in the Roman church. And he bases it on the reality of Christ and the glory of God. But unity is very important for this purpose. But unity is not uniformity. And I think that is an all, a very important point to see here. Because he is speaking to Jews and Gentiles. Now, the unity comes in being joined together in the body of Christ. This section closes out the concluding teaching of Paul in, in Romans that actually begins in the last time I preached in uh, Romans 13. And we saw there when he speaks of our salvation. He's talking about the ultimate culmination when Christ returns and we are joined together. This is our salvation. Jew and Gentile. All who are joined together in Christ. And he emphasizes this in closing out that section by telling these Romans to clothe themselves in Christ. Now we saw how this was an emphasis on the one man that we see in Ephesians. As a matter of fact, for emphasis' sake, but also for instruction, let's turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, again Paul is writing and he speaks of the unity that we are to have in Christ. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants and of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He makes out of two one. One man. But how does he do this? By taking away the hostility. Hostility from whom and to whom? Between one another? Yeah. But further, between both and God. He joins them together 
of tearing down the dividing wall. But in joining them together with one another, he joins them together with himself through Christ. Doing away with the hostility. We'll read again, verse 16. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now Romans 8, 7 speaks of, again, this hostility. Using the same word, it says the sinful mind is hostile toward God. Again, in Romans 3, 23, we saw how all have sinned. Both Jew and Gentile are alike under the condemnation of being hostile to God. They are set apart from God. They are set apart from each other. It is only through Christ that the fragments become joined together. It is only through Christ where the hostilities are put together. For we are unified in our condemnation before we are unified and our reconciliation. We are unified in condemnation. All have sinned, irrespective of your race, color, creed. All are sinful before God. It is only through Christ that unity is recognized. But I mentioned that unity is not uniformity. I think this is important to emphasize again. Because it's very easy for a thought to slip in your mind. You may not have this thought. I may just be sharing with you tidbits of my own depravity. But nevertheless, thoughts pop into my head every now and then that, you know, life would sure be easier if everybody were like me. And then I make a mistake. (laughs) Well, maybe it's not such a good idea. Or maybe it is. Because if everybody's making that mistake, would it be a mistake? For thought. <laughs> but it's very easy to use ourselves as the criterion for righteousness. As a matter of fact, this is Paul's emphasis that do not use your freedom as a criterion by which you judge another. Do not use the restrictions of your conscience to judge others. For you are not the judge. Do not use your Jewishness, your Gentileness. Do not use this as a criterion by which you judge others. For it is Christ and His righteousness. Unity is not uniformity. He is speaking to Jews and Gentiles. As a matter of fact, he writes and uses as testimony the concerns of God for the nations throughout redemption, throughout salvation history. God's concern has never been about one nation alone, but all nations that would be blessed through this one. Diversity is a part of God's plan. Now let me clarify what I mean by that because I do not want you to hear when I say diversity conversations and culture today. So that is a pseudo-diversity where it is the distinctions for distinction's sake that are emphasized. 
For when one distinction is held up, it is always over and against another. But diversity, in terms of God's plan, is never for distinction's sake. But rather, for humanity to be joined together in a way that only divinity can Where that which so easily divides us is overcome in a way that only God can overcome. Now, I think this is important to emphasize because we are tipped off in Revelations where the ideal is not just one uniformity, but it is unity in the midst of diversity. Because around the throne of God, there will be those who may become tribe and nation. There will be diversity. But it will be in the midst of unity. Now that gives me a very optimistic picture. Because there's no one part of creation that fully manifests the beauty of God. You think of a picture that's just all white. Now, if you want to check for your in your mind a moment for uh, modern art, <laughs> or avant-garde art, for that very well, maybe called art. But think of a picture in a frame that's just blank. A white canvas. You can look at it and create your own picture. Perhaps that is the justification of it. But if you're going to hang something on your wall, what are you going to hang on your wall? A blank canvas? A one that is full with a richness colors, and how the colors accent one another, and how together they paint a a beautiful mosaic, because no one color captures the fullness of the beauty of color, and so too reality, that there is no one personality, there is no one color that captures all the beauty of God. It is only when they are joined together that we begin to catch a glimpse of the splendor and beauty of God. For it is through all of creation that reflects His glory. Not one simple aspect of it, but all of it together. Unity is not uniformity. Because uniformity together cannot display the beauty and splendor of God. But note also the testimony here of unity in the midst of diversity. Does that ring any theological bells for you? I always ask my kids, we've gone through the catechism a time or two before. How many gods are there? One. How many persons in God? Three. <laughs> They're not quite as enthusiastic as I would like them to be. We have the very part of Christianity. Unity and plurality. Unity and diversity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Joined together as one God. And we, when we are joined together as fragmented and diverse people, joined together in a way that only God then we serve as a living testimony to the truth and the reality of all that God is 
It is unity that is the point. But unity is not uniformity. Now, some may call to mind verses in Scripture that say, well, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. No longer male or female, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, for all are one in Christ. What do we do there? Well, the emphasis, again, is on the unity in Christ that transcends those things that fragment us. For we do not cease to be who we were created to be. In Christ, a male doesn't become female, female doesn't become male. A Gentile doesn't cease to be a Gentile and become a Jew. We have not a setting aside of who we are, but the fullness of who we were intended to be. For in Christ we have the fullness brought about. And in Christ we have the unity joining us together. So the emphasis here is on unity for the glory of God. Now Paul uses Jesus Christ's ministry as testimony of this. He reaches back for justification throughout scriptural history. Again, in verse 8 he says, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. So he reaches back to Abraham Isaac and Jacob as justification of this desire and concern of God for the nations. And in Genesis 12, we see again that God's concern has never been simply for one nation, but that through this one nation, all nations will be blessed. Through the seed of Abraham, this is confirmed in Isaac and the promises of God to Isaac. This is confirmed in Jacob. And the promises of God to Jacob. Each and every one emphasize God's concern for the nations. For Jew and Gentile. Now, he uses all of redemption history to serve as testimony to God's concern. It is God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. So that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. And you recall in Ephesians where Paul emphasizes there, you were without hope and without God. Now we'll pick back up on this theme of hope, but I want you to think for a minute how important hope is. And how despair and hope are contrasted. Have you ever been a moment without hope? It's not a very fun place to be. It reminds me of it reminds me of the soul gasping for air. I don't know if you've ever been claustrophobic, been in a place where you are bound and a closed space, and claustrophobia begins to kick in. Or if you've ever been swimming down near the bottom of the pool or in the ocean somewhere and, and you begin to feel your uh, your lungs quickly keeping of oxygen. You know that moment just this side of sheer panic? Have you ever felt that? Not a very comfortable place to be, is it? 
This is as though Paul is saying that the Gentiles were without hope. And now, through Jesus Christ, we see God's concern is for them and has provided a means for them to be joined to God in Christ. For the fullness of Ephesians, we see that they are without hope and without God in the world. So that when we come to this, that I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm that the promise that the Gentiles, the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy. When there is this hopelessness, just this side of panic, and that panic is resolved, and hope is brought to fruition, there is indeed rejoicing. There is indeed wonder at God's mercy. And so Paul is pointing to a theological underpinning for the unity that they have to have. For it has been God's concern throughout the very creation of the universe to join together one people unto him in Christ. It is unity, but not uniformity. And it is unity that has been a concern of God throughout the very beginning of time. Now, he moves on and again quotes several times from the Old Testament. Now, James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary makes a good insight in pointing to the progressive nature of the quotes. So let's read through them in light of this. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. Among the Gentiles. It is David, the king of Israel, who is praising God among the Gentiles. So that they are, as it were, by proxy brought together in the praise of God. In verse 10, again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Again, joining together with his people. To praise God. But then, in verse 11, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Literally, it is nations in the, the quote from Psalm. Praise the Lord, all you nations, and sing praises to Him, all you people. So now, it is not simply among, it is not simply with, it is as God's people. And then in verse 12, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in Him. Specifically, they will hope in him. Now, it is not simply the progressive nature that is of emphasis. And this is the wonder of God's word. F.F. Bruce draws this point. That Paul quotes from the law, from the prophets, and from the writings of the Psalms. Now, what this is, is the sum total of the whole of Scripture for Paul at this time. As he is writing, he is emphasizing that this is not just some little footnote in God's plan. It is not simply an addendum to all that God has been doing, but is front and center in all that God has revealed about himself and his plan in the world. God, from the very beginning, has been concerned with drawing together a diverse people through Christ 
the thing he is. We join together in one body. Now the particular passages that he uses really are amazing. The first one, again, is after David has conquered Gentile nations. <laughs> he has gone out and conquered them. And now is, because of this conquest, king over them. And he says, by this conquering, through the king, all the kingdom will worship. Now, it's, again, as Christological implications, for who is the son of David? And indeed, he conquers to draw together one nation, a whole nation. But further, we have the song of Moses before his death. As he's reflecting on God's faithfulness to his people in the Exodus, out of Egypt, through all the wonder of the wilderness, of God's provision. And yet here, in a testimony of God's faithfulness to his people, Moses includes God's concern for the nations. They are not simply an agenda, an afterthought, but a part of God's plan from the very beginning. And he goes on to draw from Psalm, which is Psalm 117, 1 and 2. And if you get through 1 and 2, you are done shortest psalm and psalter. But it is one that is crammed with universal significance. Because again, it testifies to God's concerns about His whole creation. It is not a matter of Jew and Gentile. It is about drawing together His people. Now, the root of Jesse that springs up is out of Isaiah. Isaiah 11. It is clearly a, a Christological passage. We often read it and think about it around Christmas time. But it's preceded, I think, by a very, very important section that deserves note as well. Paul doesn't lift this verse out without thought of the context. But what precedes this is the discussion of the lion laying down with the lamb, the wolf laying down with the lamb, how the child will play near how those things that are traditionally divided and hostile toward one another are brought together through the root of Jesse. Again, we have emphasis here in God joining together that which is diverse in a way that only God can. The lion laying down with the lamb. What name of Yahweh's? This diversity, this hostility has now been broken in a way that only God can. And those who are far, who are far apart have been drawn near, have been made one. Now, we've mentioned hope already. This whole notion that the Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy is built off of this understanding that they are without hope. And here, in verse 13, we have a very, very important 
confusion and loss. This is what James Montgomery Boyce calls the first benediction. It is drawing together what God, uh, what Paul has been discussing. In verse 13, he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope. Now, he's been discussing this whole time, and for some time, about unity. And yet now he moves right into hope. What's the connection between unity and hope? Paul moves seamlessly from his discussion of unity to hope, as though we would readily recognize the connection. Did you readily recognize the connection? It struck me how he does this without any transition. He moves from unity right into hope. What's the connection between them? Well, unity becomes the handmaiden of hope. The source and object of which is God. How does this work? How does this fit together? Well, think back with me to the very beginning. The Christological implications of our unity. Now, in John, we were reminded that it is this complete unity that bears witness to the reality of Christ to the watching world. Now, if this bears the reality of Christ to the watching world, what is it to do for us who are in Christ? When we see this diversity, people who otherwise would not be joined together, when we see them joined together in a way that only God can do, we realize and have affirmed that our hope is not in vain. For this is a work of God and God alone. Have you ever been to a sports event? A major sports event? Like a Wizards game or a Redskins <coughs> game? It's hard for me to say as a Dallas Cowboy fan. But nevertheless, I suppose you can go and watch football. And have you ever been around folks that you normally would not associate with? It dawned on me at the Citrus Bowl when we were in Orlando. And we were just going because it was in Orlando. It was a major college football game. Well, it's an outdoor stadium. And this was before, uh, before they outlawed smoking. Well, the folks around us were smoking like, uh, like chimneys. The guy behind me is, is uh, very loose with his beer and spills it down my back. A lovely feeling when you're cheering. <laughs> it's nice cold beer. Peanut shells in the hair. And I feel my blood pressure rising. And uh, I'm, I'm biting my tongue. But then all of a sudden, toward the end of the game, things are very close. And the team that we had been cheering with is, is pressing toward the end zone for a last minute victory. And you know what happens? We're cheering together. And suddenly, they pull beer down the back. The peanut shells on the shoulders and the smoke in the nostrils don't seem quite so important. But we're joined together for that brief moment, cheering for our community. Now, when they score, you turn and you high-five. 
surprisingly, if you're sitting near a real jovial person and they're from the South, you may get a hug. There's just no chance. But for that moment, all differences cease. And you are joined together in a common purpose. Now, if we can do something like that, for a trivial pursuit of athletics. Then why cannot we do that for something as remarkable as the grace of God and Jesus Christ? It is this which causes us to transcend that which fragments. This is why the diversity in Jesus Christ makes the diversity in culture look like plastic communication. So we are joined together in the unity of purpose. And this is the emphasis of And you know what? When you see that, the reality of Christ is brought home to humanity. But only God can do that. Only God can join together that which naturally fragments. This, why unity is the handmaiden of But there's something else. When we hear the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise and rule over the nations, the Gentiles will hope in him. When we go back to Isaiah and see that this is a Christological passage, passage is pointing to the Messiah, when he comes, he will join together people who are scattered, who are lost. He will join them together. So that that foretaste of the fullness of the kingdom of God will be had. This is the emphasis on the lion laying down with the lamb, or the wolf laying down with the lamb. But those things that are naturally torn apart will be joined together. The communion of the saints here on earth gives us a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And when we see that, our hope is in Jesus. We see and have testimony that our hope is not in vain. Christ is real for only God to join us together in such a way. May the God of hope, this hope is not ours. It has not been stirred up in our own. It is a gift of God. For it has God as its source and God as its object. Notice the emphasis at the beginning and at the end of this verse. All of the ones you can miss it. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The hope that we have engendered by the unity that is brought about in Christ is not worked up in ourselves. It is a gift of God. It has God as its source, God as its object, God from beginning, God at the end. And that is the point of the world. And thanks be to God. Let's pray.